of the seasons to define yourself to remember the past to look to the future Hello and welcome to the This Hot Oscar Buzz podcast the only podcast that's even better, better than, than the, the book, book. Every week on this at Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy, except this week, we're here with our annual recap of the Toronto International Film Festival. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my beacon of blue in a sea of movie lovers, Joe Reed. For the love of film! For the love of film! I will. We've talked about the TIFF volunteer ad before, not to get too inside baseball, but this is our most inside baseball episode of the season where we talk about, or the year rather, where we talk about uh, the Toronto Film Festival. Listeners Um, who did not attend TIFF have no idea what the hell we're talking about. There's an ad every year that celebrates the wonderful TIFF volunteers, who genuinely are an army of blue and a sea of movie lovers, and we love them. Um unfailingly helpful and nice and organized and uh, uh, herding cats is a good metaphor for how for (laughs) what they do throughout the festival but every year there's a pre-roll ad celebrating them and usually it's a new ad with a new concept every time and sometimes they're more creative than others and sometimes they're the aha video uh, and sometimes they're a parody of the breakfast club and they've had the same ad now for two years in a row now it's been a busy all of the year. ads were the same except for the visa ad, the one that we did at the top of this episode. Yes, yes. Uh, the Bulgari well, ad was also the same. The 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 really annoying ones, the two different, um, or at least I only saw two. That's like, what is it for? It was there's the Jane Austen one, and then there's the horror movie one. Oh, I never saw the Jane Austen one. I only saw that. That was the like. Royal Bank of Canada celebrating the audience. Or oh, something like yeah, that, right? which has yeah, yeah. like a, a huge amount of controversy this year because all of these stars are like doing an open letter to TIFF to drop them as a sponsor. Oh, is that true? We don't yeah, like the Royal Bank of they, Canada. Uh, okay, yeah, they they're not ecologically conscious. They're like one of the worst. A bank not being really? ecologically conscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is great. Um, no, I love that ad because all that ad invites the audience to applaud themselves and it's fascinating to watch the audience either resist that temptation or fall into that trap and it's like kind of delicious because it's like especially because those ads were annoying here's to you audience i kind of liked the the horror one i kind of liked i thought she was kind of funny um and i do think there is that sappy part of me that does feel like yeah me 
TIFF audience, not me, but like TIFF audiences are built different. Remember when we talked about the film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool premiere where they were like screaming their heads off for Annette Benning and Jamie Bell? Like TIFF audiences are kind of just built different. And I like that about sure. them. And watching an entire city mobilize to get out there and watch and go line up and see American fiction, which we'll talk about in a second. Do you know what I mean? There is something. People's Choice winner, American Fiction. There is something in minutes ago firing about we're that. We're waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's oh, something. Oh no, totally, totally. It's a good. It's a good group. Those TIFF viewers. So those TIFF audiences. So anyway, uh, we are here for the however many year in a row to talk about our experience at the Toronto Film Festival. We were back once again, live and in person. Forty-one stories looming over. Downtown Toronto, Ontario. What can we say, Chris? Good festival. We were there for a shorter period than we usually are. Alas, yes. I did not see as many... Here's the thing I will say. I did not see as many films as I wanted to see in terms of like sheer volume. There were not too many movies, individual movies, that I was dying to see that I missed. I feel like I hit... I hit everything I really needed to see, almost. I really would have liked to have seen Kitty Green's The Royal Hotel. I really would have liked to have seen, um, well, now... Because of scheduling, I saw no Netflix movies. Right. I only saw Rustin. I was very content to sort of, like, with a shorter schedule, I was very content to just sort of wait, knowing that the Netflix yeah. movies would make it to me eventually. Um I really Those wanted didn't to see show until late. I and wanted to I see Wicked Little Letters and then you and Katie talked me out of it. And then I found out later that it was like really fun and kind of exactly what I was hoping for out of a like pleasant British comedy that I always like to see late in the festival, but anyway, it's fine. Right, right. Um Yeah, I don't know. What was your what was your general feeling on did you see everything you wanted to see? Did you were there any major ones that you missed? I would say no. I could have used another day or so to have yeah. seen more. Yes. Um but that's okay. Scheduling yeah. was also against us because like not seeing Nyad uh because of when we left though heard it was horrid. Heard um, bad things about it. Yeah. Heard really bad things. Yeah. Um so yeah, like I, we've had this conversation, and maybe we've had this conversation on Mike. But like after last year's TIFF experience, I didn't really feel like I had much to look forward to in the fall in terms of like things to get out of the house and go see. So like I'm I'm still very happy to have some things to look forward to this fall. My batting average this TIFF was incredible. I saw sixteen movies in total. Of those sixteen. I didn't like two of them. <laughs> like every like on some level and of those two that I didn't like, at least one of them I'm like but I'm glad I saw it. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I'm yeah, glad yeah. like one of those movies that I didn't like and we'll talk about it um was like my most discussed movie of the festival because I could not wait to just be like what did you think of this movie? We have to talk about it. It's so Are you insane. talking about the movie that like I'm laying in bed and you come like barging in like the Kool-Aid man to like yell at me about this movie? Kool-Aid Man is unfortunately accurate, yes, given my Because uh, you were so loud, like, yelling about this movie. Yes, yes. 
I did do that. It was very that. I was I did prepare you because I texted you and it was like as soon as you are back from Origin, we are talking about yeah, that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we'll get to Origin. Um, yeah, the only other one that I didn't really like was Rustin. I thought Rustin was bad, and I really had high hopes for Rustin. So that was a little bit crestfallen. Sure. Um, but everything else that I saw, I at least thought was okay. I guess Fingernails is my other one where it's just like it was okay. Um, but everything else... you really think that movie was okay? Yeah. You were as negative on that movie when you came home from it as anything else. I think you're being a little more generous than you really want to be towards that movie. I... Maybe. I think it was just... The thing about Fingernails is it's based on an untenable premise. But I think for a movie that was based on an untenable premise, it was like, okay. Like, and I say, like... Compared to everything else that I saw at the festival, that puts it, like, way at the bottom of the list. But, like, it's a dumb premise, the idea. The premise of Fingernails, which is the new movie from, uh, is it Christos Niku? Is that how we, is that? Yes, the Apple's filmmaker. The Apple's Lanthimos protege. Right, which you can tell, but it's, like, it's dumb. So the idea is that in this, like, plausible near future, there's a test you can take to determine whether you and the person you are romantically involved with are truly in love. And the test, like, requires you to, like, have a fingernail removed, which is why it's called fingernails. Um, but the whole they idea is then... Fingernails! But, but the whole idea is this, like, but now there's anxiety for people who, like, maybe they've taken the test and they're not quite sure if... You know, they took the test a couple years ago, but they don't know whether they're still truly in love with their partner. Or some people haven't taken the test and there's anxiety. And it's like, yeah, feelings fucking change. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, what, what is, like, there's no, they do not do a good job of selling why this test would be in any way valuable for people. It's like, yeah, at the moment you tested, you were maybe in love. But, like, that's the whole thing about falling out of love is that, like... Feelings change. What the fuck? This is dumb. This is dumb. I don't like it. <laughs> I didn't see that movie. It did sound to me like a movie that imagines a world where gay people don't exist, and your description yeah. of the movie did not deceive my yes. perception. Yes, um, that is correct. And you know what? Honestly, I'm fine, because like I don't want gay people to be involved with that foolishness. You, you, can Im- <laughs> you don't want gay people to be involved in this bad movie. You can, um, you can imagine a world where gay people w- would have been like, well, that's dumb. Like, that's not how we do relationships. So, like, y'all right, can have sure, that. Like, sure, you can sure. take your little fingernail test and and we'll be here, like... <laughs> We're not sacrificing fucking... our fingernails for anything. Right. We, well, like, yeah, that's uh, important uh, to the full picture aesthetic. Okay. Um, but those are the movies that I didn't care for. I guess get, get those out of the way early. You know, I thought my batting average, personally, was good, surprisingly, for the amount of bad movies i saw i wrote about all of the actor director debuts uh for the daily beast and mm-hmm. uh turned out pretty much all of them were among the worst things that i saw at the festival um with the exception of anna kendrick's woman of the hour uh i feel like people really kind of leaned into that movie in terms of how good it is because like i think that that is a very it's not this amazing debut, but it's a very serviceable movie. I think it'll do well on Netflix. Yeah. Um, I liked it. And I think it it got the benefit of being the one that did well among this like morass of movies directed by actors. 
Uh, and I think people were maybe a little more effusive about it because of that, but it is a good movie. Um, Anna yes. Kendrick knows where to put a camera. Like, Well, the thing that I liked about Woman of the Hour, I will agree with you, that, that was of the movies that I wasn't super sure about, I was very pleasantly surprised with how much I liked Woman of the Hour. I think when you hear that like Anna Kendrick directorial debut, you're expecting a kind of low-lift romantic comedy, maybe romantic dramedy, or maybe something like the movie that she did last year, um, whose title now I can't think of. Did you see that one, though, where it was her and her friends go to that weekend getaway and her abusive boyfriend? I'm to remember what this is. Whatever. Um, it was okay. It was deeply okay. Um, Anna Kendrick put some challenges in front of her for this movie. Like, this is not an easy movie to direct. This movie has challenges in terms of timelines and tone. It's a very, very delicately balanced tonal movie that goes from genuinely very funny sort of, you know, a light comedy to really terrifying, like, true crime stuff. And improbably she balances it really well she keeps the momentum going very well i think for a debut i think she she sets up some some challenges for herself and i think she succeeds quite well i was very pleasantly surprised and i'm hoping that this movie doesn't just sort of die on netflix um right. you know and you can see it could because like this is not a movie that's going to stand out from the crowd during award season and there and and like they probably won't release it maybe till next year maybe who knows but who knows that's what i would imagine i mean it sold for 11 million dollars the first deal of the festival that's a number that you could see them (laughs) unfortunately from historically what's happened with netflix buying things out of festivals that could absolutely completely go away or they could Mm -hmm. you know give it a push but yeah i imagine that's something that we'll see in the spring on netflix and Take it from us, though, listeners. Keep an ear out and an eye out. Woman of the Hour, when it comes on to Netflix, you have our recommendation. See that movie. It's a good one. Don't just sort of let it disappear. It is interesting, though, because of all of these movies, that was the one that I think people had their knives out the most for of these. And people were maybe optimistically looking towards Chris Pine Pullman. She was the Um, absolute polar opposite of Chris Pine. I think people walk into a festival being ready to you know, carve up the new and the debut Anna Kendrick movie and ready to fawn all over the new Chris Pine directorial debut because people fucking love Chris Pine. And it was kind of gratifying to me who has a little bit of a raised arched eyebrow at both of those, like both of those tendencies from people. It was very gratifying for me to have people forced to admit that the Anna Kendrick movie was good and the Chris Pine movie was bad. I don't think anybody was forced in either direction. People were people were very complimentary to the Anna Kendrick. Yeah, because and... because it was good, and the Chris Pine movie was bad, and they were and they had to say so, and that was fun for me. Listen, I was at the Pullman premiere. Listeners are going to want to hear about it. Let's get into it before we do some okay. table setting, and then we'll yes. get into the festival at large. I thought it was parts of it were fine. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, Chris Pine made. Like, an animated, like, Animaniacs type of movie. But then, it's like, it's got kind of this madcap American dad vibe, Mm -hmm. but with live action and 
nobody laughing at any of the jokes. Sounds and, great. Like, I was laughing for a while. I was like, okay, this is this is wild. I'm kind of I get what he's going for and I can laugh at some of these jokes, but by the end it gets really annoying. What's it's the premise in a annoying. nutshell without like giving it away? He is a kind of slacker pool man who lives in a mobile home at like an apartment complex and spends his time, you know, trying to preserve the city of Los Angeles uh, from things like, uh, you know, the city concerns of like development and, uh, you know, the water supply, etc. And then the movie starts referencing Chinatown every five minutes and it becomes this kind of very silly noir movie centered mm-hmm. around this character who is like the most annoying little boy at a Christmas party who just wants to like show you what he can do. Uh, you know, you know, like what I'm saying. This Except does sound is... like the reasons why people say they don't like Anna Kendrick. That's very funny to me, actually. It's yes. not like that though. It's a little more. I don't know. It's but like the comedic tones throughout it are wild. There is a moment where Annette Benning, who I do think is funny in the movie, uh-huh. it just cuts to her doing a direct camera address, sitting in a chair, and you can tell that she's reading from the book in her hands, and you can see the cover of the book is "My Struggle," and it's like, oh, oh dear, ugh. it's it gets it gets cringy and annoying, and it. That being sounds, said, with like, I like. was like, I had some laughs with this movie. When I did, I was one of maybe like three or four people laughing in the theater. I don't think I have been a part of a TIFF crowd that a movie did so poorly at. <laughs> like, the vibe yeah. in the room, it was bad vibes. And I gotta say, like, maybe 20%, 20 to 25% of the theater was like, blocked off for people who were and it was associated with the movie like people who were part of the production and it was still like flat out dying none of the laughs were coming from that part of the crowd it was it was a late evening premiere though right too it was like 9 30 on a monday not in a large in the light box not in one of the large venues which should have been a sign yeah and it had this you know, it was supposed to be projected in 35 millimeter, so we're supposed to be seeing it on film. And they said that there was a technical issue and we couldn't see it that way. Yeah. And I feel like this movie having its world premiere in one of the not large venues should have been a sign and nobody listened to yeah. it. Um, it's not a good movie. I think yeah. it's going to be scrubbed off the face of the earth. But, like, you know, it's not... It. it it's... I understand why people think it's a disaster. I yeah. think it's just mostly embarrassing. All right, let's get the the other bad movies off of the out of the way before we can move on to the good ones, and then we'll do the the Vulture movie fantasy league promo yep, yep. in between. Uh, worst movie I saw at the festival was Patricia Arquette's Gonzo Girl. I think no one else was <laughs> saying that at the festival because no one else saw it. Saw it, right? Yeah. Um, really bad movie. Willem Dafoe is basically playing a Hunter S. Thompson type. Right. The tone is all over the place. It's a lot of close-ups of him screaming. Sure. It's not a good movie. Sure. It's bad. It's really bad. Unfortunately, as I said before, the worst movie that I saw at the festival was Rustin, which is going to be released by Netflix 
in January ahead of what I still imagine will be a campaign to get Coleman Domingo a Best Actor nomination. Coleman Domingo has been good in enough things that if he gets nominated for a bad thing, I'm not going to begrudge it. Um, it's a real... I hesitate to use this word because it's so TikTok generation, but it's real cringy. It's very... When the when the title when the credit came up at the end of the movie that it was written by Dustin Lance Black, I was like, okay, a lot of this makes sense now. It's directed by George C. Wolf, who directed uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom a few years ago, which I really liked a lot, a lot, a lot. Like George C. Wolf is most known for being a theater director. He's also he'll also show up in movies uh, sometime. He's if you'll you'll notice him in uh, the uh, runway. Uh, editorial room in The Devil Wears Prada. Um, But he also directed the TV movie adaptation of Ruben Santiago Hudson's Lackawanna Blues for HBO back, back, back in the day. Um, I think as a filmmaker, he is probably as good as his material, and the material in this movie is really not good. It's so... um, It's this kind of brain-dead, rah-rah biopic stuff where uh, I'm, it's it's really, it's hard to explain it without just Characters like, constantly introducing themselves by their full name, it sounds like. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of the, there's, there's so much potential intrigue in this idea of Bayard Rustin was a uh, black gay civil rights leader in the 1960s who helped organize the March on Washington with Martin Luther King and then was kind of drummed out of the movement for various PR reasons. And it's a it's a powerful story and there have been like several documentaries recently that have um that have touched upon that story. There was an FX uh five-part documentary on queer uh issues whose title is now escaping me, but that that one focused on Bayard Rustin for a while, and it was very, very interesting. It's an incredibly like, fascinating story that is told in the most sort of embarrassingly broad strokes. All of the performances are like pitched to 11, and... Uh, it's just a, it's, it's sort of this like recitation of facts of characters sort of like stomping out to the middle of the stage and like planting their feet and being like, and this is why this happened. And this is why, you know, uh, um, uh, Bayard Rustin didn't get along with this person from the NAACP and his queer relationships are really drawn in these very kind of like melodramatic, uh, uh, strokes. It's it's a tough watch. It's a really tough watch, which, as I said, I don't think disqualifies it from it being an awards contender. Actually, like I think sometimes people really go for movies that tell you exactly what's you know what's going Netflix on. Netflix has gotten Oscar nominations for movies that aren't widely liked or thought of as good before, so I don't sure. think it's. I don't think the press perception of this movie out of TIFF is going to harm the movie right. at all. Right. I feel the same way about Nyad, too. I, I would not having seen Nyad, but I would agree with that uh, out of hand. I'm not I'm not at all dismissing either one of these two uh, movies in terms of awards chances. Although I will say, no, I'm not even going to say that Coleman Domingo can't win Best Actor. You can win Best Actor giving a you know, broad performance in a bad movie. It's happened before. Like, there's no... Joker. Sure. 
yeah, like let's uh, Judy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I and I stick up for Judy in a lot of ways, but um, I was disappointed because this is a this is a, a historical figure who deserves a more robust and um, thorny movie than this than this one delivered. Um, the other. <laughs> worst movie that I saw at TIFF, unfortunately, was Ava DuVernay's uh, Origin, which is not bad for lack of trying. This movie really goes for it, and I really appreciate that about Origin. It is an adaptation of Isabel Wilkerson's nonfiction book, Cast, which explores uh, uh, racial uh, prejudice and oppression through the lens of Cast divisions as presented in places like India and uh, Nazi Germany. Um, it's an academic. It's an academic text that is a try that Duvernay attempts to adapt in a way that would like make lay people understand it, and I think it fundamentally fails at that task. And but the swings she takes in it, while not successful are real interesting. I don't know if that's how you felt about it as well. There are so many I, things I, I can like... I kinder thoughts for it. I don't okay. think it works, but I do, imp- I do appreciate the swing, especially for a filmmaker who I think her instincts are more towards mainstream storytelling, and that's not a dig in any way, but doing these very, like... Um, non-traditional a non-traditional approach to this like you said academic material i don't ultimately think it works i understand why some people really really like it um i also understand why some people like you think that it's really bad yeah um i fell somewhat in the middle with it i i think on Ellis is really good in it but then there's also scenes where it's like you know, she literally builds a whiteboard uh, in the final scene of this movie. So there, there's a little crunchiness there, to there it. There are there um, are metaphors that are there are metaphors in this movie that I think are effective if you are giving a lecture. The one at the end of the movie yeah. where, she, where she explains um, America's sort of racial situation as akin to you've bought a house and the foundation is damaged and. You may not have damaged that foundation, but it's your house now, and you are responsible for getting it fixed. That's a that's a great metaphor to use in a lecture, as delivered in just that way in a movie. It sounds didactic. It is. It is didactic. You know what I mean? There is. Right. This is a the attempt to tell this the to adapt this book by telling the story of the author and how she wrote this book uh-huh. i think is an is is a interesting workaround that ultimately i think doesn't work because it the movie never escapes its identity as being a sort of academic framework in search of a story and instead yeah. there's you, a reason why some people were comparing it to eat pray love in that way well and that's the thing is this the stuff that focuses on isabel wilkerson's life i think those are the really powerful parts of Anjanou ellis taylor's performance and she's an incredible actress of course and there are moments where she like goes through like these moments of, of grief and these moments of you know real frustration and she sells it very well but then I think, yet you mentioned Eat, Pray, Love. She goes on this sort of uh, world tour of oppression, and 
learns these stories of that that end up sort of beefing up her theory of America's racial animus as being an issue of caste rather than racism, which my other problem with the movie is I don't think the movie ever truly sells me on the notion that there is a difference between caste oppression and racism as presented in America's racial situation that goes anything beyond semantics. I think ultimately the movie doesn't sell that to me and, Mm -hmm. and I think it needs to, um, but you get these like little portions of the movie that start to tell these little vignettes of stories within a story of, you know, this group of uh, of white and black researchers down in Mississippi who were there essentially embedded in the local racist community to observe how whites and blacks interacted. She tells the story of a little league team in the segregated uh, in a segregated town, which. Uh, couldn't all go play in the community pool together because one of the kids was black. She tells these sort of small, she tells the story of Martin Luther King touring India and like getting a lot of his ideas about, you know, uh, American, the American presentation of racism from his visit to India and his observation of the caste systems there. All of those things could have been individual movies that I would have loved for, and I still would love for somebody to tackle. I think in the movie, they are used as like slides in a slideshow. I don't want to get too into it because like this movie deserves to be, you know, dealt with in its own terms when it actually opens. But sometime um, this year from Neon. What do you think of it as an awards contender? Because it obviously, it premiered in Venice and then very hastily set up a TIFF premiere. And it felt like there was this sense of, oh, here comes Origin. And it's about to sort of try and barnstorm the awards race. And after having seen it, I have a pro- I have trouble imagining it just because whereas Rustin is a worse movie, it's also a much more recognizably Oscar-y movie. Whereas Origin feels too academic to me to 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 build a to build any awards momentum what do you think of that i i'm really curious because like also part of the reason i think why you know niad and rustin are not going to have issue uh as far as the industry is concerned if people don't necessarily if like you know the uh, if you know moviegoers or the press doesn't think they're very good mm-hmm. you know neon who has origin They've never really had to sell us a well, I guess I Tanya. They never really had to yeah. sell a movie that wasn't as well received. Um Sure. That's the bigger question mark for me. As far as the movie itself, I can see the industry going for it and appreciating the swing. Uh I I think it's one of the bigger question marks moving forward in the season. Neom mm-hmm. also has a lot on their plate. Yeah. Um so we'll see. I I could see a campaign being, you know, uh, six, I could see Ingenue Ellis Taylor getting a robust campaign for Best Actress. I think the performance backs that up. And I think she's the kind of yeah. actress who is ready to level up from a supporting nomination to a lead nomination. But Best Actress is really, really competitive this year from where we're standing now in mid-September with, you know, Carrie Mulligan and Emma Stone and Annette Benning and Sandra Huller. And uh, it's going to be, 
what's interesting, I think, is a lot of those contenders are like, Netflix has a lot of lead actresses to push. Now even Neon has multiple ones to push. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think Sandra Wooler is going to be talked about all season and is going to be fine to get a nomination. But, yeah, you know, those competing... Uh, within a distributor, you know, competing priorities do have a way of playing out. But we'll see. But where do you see competing... Pri- oh, I guess it's Carrie Mulligan and Annette Benning. Yeah, both Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And May-December. Oh, right. And Natalie Portman for May-December. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good point. A lot going on at Netflix. A lot going on at Netflix this year. That's right. Um... Okay, before we move on to um, People's Choice and, and uh, the movies that, that fared better at Toronto, I do want to talk about the Vulture Movie Fantasy League. When this episode goes up, uh, as we record this, this episode will go up tomorrow. A um, uh, couple more weeks to get your team in for Vulture Movie Fantasy League. So if I have cautioned you to maybe um, wait a little bit and see what the landscape is before you draft – you have waited long enough. The fall festivals have uh, played out. You have all the information you're going to get from the fall festivals. Don't wait for New York Film Festival because they won't. They will only be just underway by the time uh, the deadline for drafting a team uh, is here. November, September twenty eighth. You need to have uh, your team drafted and. While there remains always uh, a chance that a movie will drop out of the 2023 season uh, I would I would say right now is where you should be looking to draft a team and there are 100% some... post festival are there any Chris you have uh, I don't think you've drafted a team yet but I think you've taken a look at uh, the landscape there are there any movies that jump out to you as particularly tasty as a drafting option at their price point? The $20 range, I feel like, is where the, you know, point power lies, you know, because who knows what box office points are going to do. Granted, the Taylor Swift movie is, what, a $10 buy, $5 $5 buy? $5 buy, yeah. So if you want to get some box office points, that's, you know, probably a good bet. Maybe not for awards. But the $20 range is where you have... What films are around there? I think Barbie is like $25. Okay, so your $25 range is where you can get Barbie, The Holdovers, Maestro, uh, Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Then you drop into your $20 movie is a little bit less certain with something like The Color Purple. Uh, Past Lives is a $20 buy. Um, you can get Anatomy of a Fall for a cool 15 we just mentioned May December. You can get that for fifteen. Across the Spider Verse, which seems like a major contender in animated, is fifteen. So yeah, that's where you're sort of looking, Chris. Is that mm-hmm. general area? It's not that's, a bad idea. That's where I'm strategizing. That's where I'm moving the chart around. I can see that. That's What's good. also valuable, like Oppenheimer is a fifty dollar buy in fifty five. Oppenheimer is a fifty. So yeah. So. Play your cards right. You could maybe get Oppenheimer and some of those, and then some of the lower dollar items, and we'll see. You've got to be able to fill out a full eight film roster, though. So be careful by about spending too much money on your top end, or else you're just going to be fishing through the dollar bin for 
uh, last uh, for roster fillout. And much as um, uh, Dick's the Musical, which just won the People's Choice Award at TIFF for Midnight Madness, um, is a fun pick. I'm not sure how many awards. I mean, who knows? Independent Indie Spirit, Spirit nominee does not have an for original song category. Independent Spirit nominee for best first screenplay. Uh, uh, a possibility. <laughs> who knows? Um, all right. So for uh, Vulture Movie Fantasy League, Chris, also, do you want to remind our listeners that they can sign up for a league if they want to join in with their fellow Garys? Yeah, there's a league option. We are encouraging all listeners of the show and all Garys to uh, sign up with the league name All of Us Garys. That's capital A-L-L, capital O, F, capital U, S, Capital G A R Y S. All one word, no spaces. People were asking what that's for, and it's like, have these people are these people not hounding for details for all of us strangers, the Andrew Hay movie? It's gonna be so infuriating if I can't get down to New York Film Festival and I have to wait till December to see all of us strangers. I know that's the case for everybody, but like I wanna see it maybe more than anybody else. So um Newfest is also showing it, so you could try I know. The problem remains, which is that nobody I know in New York is vacating their apartment for a month and will let me live there <laughs> because it's so fucking expensive to stay in a hotel in New York City. I hate it. Um, it Eric Adams is ruining the city. He's pricing everybody out. Get rid of them as soon as possible in New York. Okay. So, um, yes. So, uh, Gary is everywhere. Go to vulture.com backslash movies dash league, uh, for the vulture movie fantasy league. You can get rules and regulations. You can see what prizes you could win, which include, uh, uh, 65 inch Roku, uh, television, a Roku stream bar, uh, some pretty badass headphones. There's a criterion channel subscription this year, which is new, uh, for fourth through eighth place. Uh, there's a, a grab bag of vulture merch. I mean, there are, there are prizes, there are prizes and not just for first place. So, um, head on also over the prize of bragging rights. If you win uh, the greatest prize of all cannot be, un- cannot be undersold as Whitney Houston once told us, um, uh, to brag on yourself. It is the greatest prize of all. So, yes. uh, listen to Whitney, uh, vulture movie fantasy league. You've got until September 28th to sign up for a team, Get out there and do it, everybody. We'll see you on the playing field. <laughs> All right. Chris. Joe, do you also want to hype our Patreon for listeners? Why don't we? Yes. Uh, Patreon.com slash this had Oscar buzz is where you're going to go. If you have not already signed up for a $5 monthly membership for this had Oscar buzz, turbulent brilliance, which is what we are calling our Patreon, we have some really good episodes already up. So even just if you signed up for what we have up there now we have uh we have exceptions and, ex- and excursions on uh, this head oscar buzz turbulent brilliance what we mean by that is the exceptions are the movies that we could not cover on flagship show because they've gotten a couple oscar nominations but they were still pretty disappointing we're talking about movies like uh nine and the lovely bones or even movies that we love like pleasantville uh that did not lovely get... bones is not up yet it is coming october 1st oh As my gosh by the subscribers that's true all right lovely bones is coming up thank you chris for keeping me uh on point on the schedule. What just did go up, though, is uh, one of our excursions episodes. Excursions are when we sort of go off format, off topic a little bit, and go into 
the kind of down a rabbit hole of uh, one of our little Oscar obsessions, which this past uh, week we put up an episode on the 2016 Actress Roundtable that featured no fewer luminaries than Isabelle Huppert, Annette Bening. Annette Benning and her friends taking a trip to South America. To uh, really investigate that area. Amy Adams's awful baker's wife wig from uh, Into the Woods in the Park. Annette Ben, or uh, I said Annette Benning, uh, Natalie Portman, uh, Emma Stone, Naomi Harris, Taraji P. Henson. Um, Taraji P. Henson sassing the fuck out of uh, what's his face, the moderator who I always forget. Stephen Galloway, who sucks. Um, it's a good one. We have some really good discussion there. Uh, we have a mailbag upcoming, which is going to be our next excursion. So, Chris, why don't Just you give the details? Use this as your reminder to submit your question, especially to our sold-out Sugar Daddy tier. You guys have your own post on there. As part of your Sugar Daddy uh, Benefits. privileges, you get a guaranteed mailbag question. That's I know right. some of you have not submitted yet, so be sure to do that. And then for... All regular certified Garys, be sure to get your question in. Questions are open until the end of September. Uh, we love you, Garys, and we want to uh, share our uh, extraness with you on this Hedoscopus Turbulent Brilliant. <laughs> so go and sign up. Uh, you won't regret it. All right. Christopher, we just before we started recording, we got ourselves a People's Choice winner at TIFF. And our little group chat that you and I have with Katie Rich, Katie called for predictions just this morning who we thought would win. And Katie and I both thought it would be the holdovers. And you thought it would be... No, Katie said American Fiction. Oh, Katie I said American Fiction. Okay. Because I didn't want to, like, you know, I wanted to, like, judge something else to have bragging rights rather than piggyback. I said Hitman. That's Hitman right. That's voice. right. That's right. But uh, he called American Fiction. We got to talk. American Fiction would have been yeah my actual prediction if I wasn't being a. Pest. You kept saying it during the festival. You said you thought as soon as you saw American Fiction, you pegged it as a possible People's Choice winner. That premiere crowd really ate it up. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who were in that premiere screening, yeah, really thought of this as a potential winner. Yeah, um, it's the type of movie that was getting. So many laughs throughout the movie that we were missing clear jokes that were happening. Yes. Um, That's how my screening of The Holdovers was, which is why I was predicting The Holdovers. Um, American Fiction, uh, directorial debut from Cord Jefferson, who I know from as a culture writer from, you know, he had, he had written for Gawker and he had written for Grantland and he had written for a bunch of different places. This is how I felt when Shea Serrano, uh, premiered his, uh, TV show Primo over the, over the summer. And it was so good. And I loved it so much. Um, it's nice to see these sort of people who work in the general sort of field that I've been working in kind of make good. And Court Jefferson has been, you know, writing great things for a while. He won an Emmy along with Damon Lindelof for an episode of Watchmen that he wrote uh, a few years ago. And But this is his film debut uh, with American Fiction. Chris, why don't you explain what, sort of briefly, but uh, explain what American Fiction was about. So it stars Jeffrey Wright in a really incredible performance as uh, this writer who is not getting so much attention for his books, even though they are, you know, seen as very good. Opposite, you know, what's happening in the literary field, books that he perceives as by Black writers as being exploitative, etc. 
Meanwhile, we're also seeing uh, personal details about his life. You know, it's not just, you know, a character that's talking points. Um, He's, you know, also this fully-fledged character um, that Jeffrey Wright is phenomenal in. But uh, the twist of the story is he uh, decides to go by an alias to write the type of book that he has been criticizing and the journey... um, of getting that book published and I love that he uh, writes this he writes this novel very quickly as a as a troll essentially as a fuck yes. you to the industry that he's going to send it in with the with the assumption but also for the money of it because he gets this huge advance and he needs it for you know care for his ailing for mother for his ailing mother but also he right. expects that when he sends it in that the second somebody reads it somebody's going to know that it's him throwing a middle finger to the literary industry and he's going and it'll be received as such and then to his great surprise and of course Anybody who's seen a satire <laughs> sort of sees right. this coming. They love it, of course. And it becomes this, like, sensation. I think the thing that you mentioned, though, is is very is very crucial to the success of American fiction, which is, on one level, it is this kind of scathing indictment of the literary industry and the ways in which... Um, uh, black authors and black creators. This is also gets into ideas of like film adaptations and TV adaptations, that kind of thing mm-hmm. that, um, that take these, that prioritize stories that will appeal to white audiences, either white audiences who want to kind of white liberal audiences who want to self-flagellate over, um, these stories of like black pain through, you know, uh, mm-hmm. stories about slavery or stories about oppression or white audiences who want to kind of revel in these stories of hardened black criminals in, you know, uh, in gangs and, and, you know, uh, drug runners and and guns and all this sort of stuff and as being like the creative pinnacle of uh you know of black work artistry. that's emblematic of the black experience right you know. and and all of that is is insightful and incisive and comes from you can tell it comes from a place this is also by the way this is an adaptation of the novel uh, erasure by percival everett um mm-hmm. but you can tell this comes from a place from everett and also from cord jefferson of experience and, you know, sort of uh, the heightening of your real feelings. But on the other side, there is this really, really successful family dramedy happening mm-hmm. with, you know, there's this, this it's, he's one of three siblings, all of whom have very specific and, um, and challenging relationships, not only to their mother, who is, you know, who is ailing and needs to be placed in a home, but also to their late father and his brothers played their by mother st- played by Leslie Uggams, we should say played by Leslie Uggams. June was busting out all over in this film. Um, uh, Jeffrey Wright's brother is played by Sterling K. Brown, who has, you know, his characters recently left his wife and come out as gay. His sister is played by Tracy Ellis Ross. Uh, Jeffrey Wright's character, who's uh, name is Thelonious uh, Allison. Of course, he goes by Monk because the, the you know, uh, the Thelonious of it all. Um, Monk the movie's is also a decent romantic comedy, too, because his tremendous romantic, romantic comedy is played by Eric Alexander. Eric who... Alexander is so good in this movie. Um, She's gets the, okay she is so good in this movie she's getting the type of role that she should have been getting like you said for the past 20 years i would still argue mm-hmm. 
I want her to be playing roles that give her more to do. I was just happy uh, to see course. her get the level of screen time that she gets in this movie. This is why I specified when I said that, like, rom-coms. I want her to have been the lead in about 15 rom-coms over the last 20 years. Since, <laughs> since from living single to now, she should have been, you know... What I mean, whatever you can you can rail against the the movie industry and and uh, lack of opportunity for black actresses. Um, uh, but anyway, um, some really great small performances in this movie from Adam Brody and Issa Rae. Keith David shows up for a scene and is very good. Um, but I think the show here is Jeffrey Wright. I think Jeffrey Wright I, is yeah. incredibly good in this movie, and I'm hoping. This is People's Choice. The People's Choice winner at TIFF has not gone without getting, has not, has, how do I not do a double negative here? The People's Choice winner at TIFF has gone on to get a Best Picture nomination every year since 2011. It's been a long time since the People's Choice winner has not gotten a Best Picture nomination. So MGM. There's a decent shot that this movie becomes a Best Picture nominee. I really, really hope that it helps catapult the movie to get Jeffrey Wright the nomination because, like, it's a comedic performance. It's not the type of thing that the Oscars necessarily go for in terms of an acting performance, but, like... So I want point Jeffrey Wright's a legend, (laughs) like, and he's so good in this movie. Um, The thing about so I want to go through the last like backwards through the People's Choice winners very briefly because when you talk about comedies that have won, there's always something. So like Fablemans won last year, Belfast the year before, both of those sort of you know coming of age memoirs from their filmmakers. Nomadland won in 2020. That's a straight drama. Jojo Rabbit, probably the most overtly comedic of the recent winners, but even that one, it's like, it's an overt comedy set in Nazi Germany. What do the Oscars love most of every, anything? It's right. being set in Nazi Germany. Green Book, that's a whole other bunch of bullshit. Three Billboards, La La Land, Room, The Imitation Game, 12 Years a Slave, Silver Linings Playbook, and then the last Which I think movie, is probably the best analog for like this movie and what the potential is for oscar silver linings playbook yeah because like it's a comedy that's kind of you know uh, i like that movie but in terms of the i do too energy to it the kind of like pace i think movie. there's so much more drama in silver linings playbook than there is in american fiction i worry that i just my worry is that that American fiction is going to be too much of a comedy to succeed. And I hope I'm wrong because it would be a real bad look for one thing. If this is like the one exception to the people's choice to best picture pipeline. The other thing is they would just be denying themselves this really, really good movie. And especially I think Jeffrey Wright, who has never been nominated for an Oscar, which is obscene and absurd. Um, Jeffrey Wright deserves to get his first Oscar nomination for this. And I'm putting out the call now. Um, Let's make this happen. Um, There's also an aspect to winning the people's choice that I think people get a little show me about. uh And I do think that this movie, like you can nitpick this movie. Coming to this movie (laughs) with... we described it to our listeners, there is obviously a lot going on here. There's obviously maybe some moments of it being 
two or three competing movies. That being said, it's so enjoyable. I've also I seen people mention that. that the ending is not great. I don't think it's the str- the movie's strongest point. It's kind of the reason why I thought it might not win People's Choice, and that there are other movies that end a lot stronger. Um, yeah. But here's what I will say. Do not, please don't go to American fiction with your arms crossed with a show me attitude. Like, be open to this movie, be open to a little bit of messiness with this movie, but it's, it, it's, it's rewarding if you, you know, if you go with, with your mind ready to, um, I don't know. With a, with a, with... And see it in a fucking theater because it really plays to a crowd. Okay, let's talk about the runners-up. The two runners-up for People's Choice were Alexander Payne's The Holdovers and Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. I really did think The Holdovers was going to win just because my screening was so raucous for it. It's such a likable movie. It is a There is no barrier to entry to this movie, I don't think. I think it's very... It's so accessible. It's so... Um, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's a, a simple movie, and I don't want to use that as backhanded uh, at the all. The simplicity, I think, is one of the strong things going for it. I think it's, so, too. It's, you know, straightforwardness, I think. It's also Alexander Payne's best movie since Sideways, and that's, like, I don't think there's any Which is true, that. but it's such damning praise, right? Like, sure. you know, those are not, you're comparing it to not great movies, but, in my opinion. But two of those not great movies were Best Picture nominees. Do you know what I mean? So the Oscars really love Alexander Payne. I, I definitely expect The Holdovers to be a Best Picture contender. I think Paul mm-hmm. Giamatti and Divide Joy Randolph are definitely in the acting uh, uh, races. I am... I really enjoyed myself with this movie. I really... It's, it's the one movie that I saw at TIFF that I can't wait to like recommend to my parents. Which mm-hmm. sometimes is a backhanded compliment, but it's like it's not in this case. I think this is a movie that will recommend well, and yeah. um, it's. I mean, I think if you've seen the trailer, you sort of you get the gist of it. Giamatti as a teacher at a uh, prestigious uh, boarding preparatory school for like you know children of rich senators and whatnot uh, in the nineteen seventies. Um, he. And uh, he's the teacher designated to stay at the school over holiday break with the handful of students who can't go home for the holidays. Uh, Divine Joy Randolph is the uh, cafeteria manager at the school who also is staying over holiday break. She has uh, recently sort of undergone a family tragedy. I'm not sure to the degree to which that's being revealed in the trailer, so I won't say specifically, but... Um, it's in the trailer, suggestively. It is. Okay. Um, and then, of this handful of students that have to stay back, there is one student in particular who uh, uh, is sort of an older teen who is of particular uh, note and particular difficulty. He and Giamatti really do not get along, and surprise, surprise, the events of the story move along to where they come to an understanding with each other, and it becomes a little bit of a road trip movie for a while. It becomes a movie about, you know, uh, class resentments and, um, you know, overcoming the hard uh, aspects of your past and it's just a really solid strong good very funny movie like this is a it is very funny yeah there's no real element of surprise but i don't think the movie needs it no um for me it was 
I, a movie I liked quite a bit, but was a little long. I needed less with the teens than yeah. Know, I liked the teens, me, especially for the length of the movie. I liked the teens more than you did. I did not like the teens. Um, <laughs> Chris, but yeah, it's a good movie. Another Chris one that taking I public like... transportation. I did not like the teens. <laughs> it's another movie that I could have like a bunch of nitpicks about, but I feel like uh, you know. Yeah. The the movie transcends it, especially uh, much like American Fiction. Yeah, um, just by being so funny. Yeah, um, excited to see J- Divine Joy Randolph in the supporting actress conversation. I think she's wonderful. One million movie. percent. Yeah, um, I did not see the boy in the heron. Oh, you didn't. Did. That's right. I did not. Uh, I did. Um, for, like wonderful to see a Miyazaki movie as part of a film festival. This is the first time I've been able to do that. That's really. Um, felt special. The audiences were very, very buzzy for this movie. I think there was a ton of excitement. As a Miyazaki movie, there are others I like better, but, like, of the people I know who are, like, super, like, big-time Miyazaki fans, they walked out of that movie and were, like, singing its praises to the hill. So, like, take what I say with a grain of salt. Um, I think it takes a while to get to the point where I'm, like, really invested. I think it's a little long. Um, and... But by the, I think it ends tremendously well. I think there is uh, a point in which the story sort of, like, unlocks itself. Where, I mean, it's a Miyazaki movie, so it's a lot of, like, you know, uh, fantastical creatures who end up being metaphors for the history of, you know, Japan during the pre-war era or, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, while also being a story about like a kid who misses his mom and who has complicated feelings about his stepmom. And while all of this time, like there's a bird that's maybe not really a bird and it's kind of tormenting him. And he goes into this kind of magical realm and parakeets are cooking up humans for dinner and there are uh, little things that look like kirby from nintendo and there's just (laughs) there's a lot going on there's it's you know obviously a feast for the senses and all that and um i felt there (laughs) there are times in which i'll walk out of a miyazaki movie and i'm like cool 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 I don't know what I think about that. You know what I mean? It's just like, I mm-hmm. think, and I sort of like, there are very few movies that I much, that I get more reward out of reading the reviews of than Miyazaki movies. I love hearing other people talk about that because like, that's how I then process what I have seen. And really like, you know, it's it's not that I'm waiting to be told how I felt about a movie, but I think Miyazaki movies, especially once I hear more people talk about it, I am able to sort of sift through my own feelings about the movie and come out at a more, you know, concrete feeling. And so I'm going to have a very good time, I think, throughout the next several months, listening to people talk about The Boy and the Heron. Um, I think it's going to be a contender in animated feature. It is not going to be Japan's uh, choice for the international feature, and we'll talk about that in a We'll second. get into that. Um but I think the excitement for Miyazaki being back, I don't... There, I've seen some people say that this is maybe a fringe contender for a Best Picture nomination. I think that'd be cool. I don't think it's going to happen. But, like, you know, 
I'm all for cool things to happen at the Oscars. <laughs> so like that would be fun. Um, I'm excited for you to see it though, Chris. What are your general Miyazaki feelings? I've done a lot of Miyazaki catch up this year. Yeah. Um, I have nothing interesting to say about Miyazaki. I'm not a scholar while also, you know, really enjoying every movie of his that I've seen. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you I also didn't seeing this movie in IMAX in a few months. You also didn't see the Midnight Madness, the uh, People's Choice winner, correct? I did not. I did not see Dix the Musical. It opens this month. Well, it, they they changed the release plan for the movie now, but I was like, I can see this in two weeks, and it would have had to have like derailed my schedule to see it, so I didn't see it. Uh, on my list of movies that I'm encouraging people to see in a theater and 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 a crowded theater at that, Dix the Musical, experience this movie. Um watch other people react to this movie. Uh, everybody I s- talked to who saw Dix at TIFF really liked it, including me. I think there, uh, Aaron Jackson and Josh Sharp, who I've seen do comedy in New York uh, throughout the years, are very funny and are very, uh, I think, intentionally, if you've seen them do comedy, you understand that like they are not here to do comedy in any way conventionally. I think they very much prize sort of like doing the thing that you would not expect them to do. And so all of Dick's is this sort of riding the line of try hard, but in a way that I think it stays on the good side of everything. It's like, yeah, nothing really makes sense in this movie. And yet it makes, it makes the sense of two comedy people who will will make that most absurd choice every time. Do you know what I mean? Right. So like along those My lines vibe it actually from does the make trailer sense. is that like it's not being try hard, it's presenting try hard as a comic sensibility. Like yes. it's almost making fun of try hard. Yeah. It's also aggressively what was um what was the the movie that Lights Camera Jackson was like? It's hostile towards uh, heterosexuals. Joyride, <laughs> remember? Wasn't it Joyride? No, that was hostile towards men. Not LCJ. Dicks oh, the God. musical is the most hostile towards straight people movie I've ever seen, and that is a compliment. Like if you if that appeals to you at all, as even as a straight person, if if and if you are a straight person and you hear me say that, that should make you want to go see this movie. Like this movie uh does not value the heterosexual experience, and in fact reviles it. And I love that for this movie. And um see it okay so do we think there was anything surprising that didn't make the people's choice lineup i I was expecting hitman to show up especially when i heard that there was a mid applause break yes in the premiere screening that's true for the big scene and listeners there is a big scene that is fucking awesome hitman's the new Uh, movie from richard linkletter it is a quasi based on a true story uh, movie starring Glenn Powell as a sort of ordinary guy who moonlights uh, helping uh, essentially like police uh, sting operations, specifically ones where people try and hire people to kill uh, people for them. And he ends up being unexpectedly really good at it and, you know, maybe a little too good at it and it gets him caught up in a relationship. And it is... 
among many other things, a tremendous showcase for Glenn Powell, who I've obviously loved for years. He's definitely no longer like the best kept secret in Hollywood after, you know, Top Gun Maverick and a bunch of other things. But like, I've loved this guy back to fucking Scream Queens. And um, (laughs) his superpower is that he's the funniest and also like the most uh, like the most knowingly attractive person. Like he's, he's somebody who sort of like wields his attractiveness like a weapon and he knows it. And this movie. And also the beginning of this movie, we're supposed to believe that he's like a dweeb. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, he tries his best to sell dweeb, but he actually kind of sells it. And I believe it. It's a great performance. I said, walking out of this movie, I'm like, I have my two should wins for the Golden Globes musical or comedy category this year, <laughs> and it's Glenn Powell and Hitman and Jennifer Lawrence and No Hard Feelings, and neither one of them are going to win, but I need them both to be nominated because, like, they are and they're fantastic. both bringing back the romantic comedy yes. with complete full force. This is like I thought Hitman was one of the best romantic comedies I've seen in a while. Of course, you would if say you, that. Of course, you would if say you that. If you have yep. a slight screw loose. Uh, um, as I sometimes do, I think you will find it a very romantic movie. I was very like touched by the ultimate. This we, surprises we don't have to me. Get into it. I don't want this to surprises it. me none. I will say, see this movie, and you'll walk out of it and be like, yes, of course, Chris thought this was incredibly romantic. Yes, yep, yep, yep yes, yep. yes, it's a very romantic movie. Yeah, um, yeah, Hitman's a blast. Uh, someone needs to buy it. I feel like somebody probably already has. I was going to say, by the time you're listening to this, there's a good well chance that somebody's bought it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But not Netflix. We were talking about this with Richard Lawson, former guest. Don't put uh, Richard that movie Lawson. on Netflix. I swear to God. Give this movie at least a small theatrical run. Allow people to see this movie in a room full of people. It's such a crowd pleaser. It's such a movie that like will get everybody like laughing. It's so. It's not a movie. It it uh, nothing deserves to die a quiet Netflix death. We mentioned this with Woman of the Hour, but like especially not Hitman. Please do not let it happen. Yeah. Um, Again, it was another movie that I could nitpick, but I had a great time. Yeah. Um, other, we've mentioned the holdovers as a potential best picture contender. Do we think we saw any other future best picture nominees at TIFF? I would say we've seen the fewest number of future best picture nominees than we've ever seen at TIFF. I would agree. I think Anatomy of a Fall has real potential. I agree with you. The can. I would Palm also Dorwinner. say it's it's very interesting because this is a movie that I think everyone was aligned. I mean, not a not you know a TIFF world premiere or anything, but everybody right. was pretty aligned on its greatness. But I heard nobody really having actual conversation about it, and that's the zone of interest. That was a, I felt like that movie got a weird reception, and that everybody was aligned in saying it was one of the best things they saw. But nobody really talked about it. And maybe that's fine, because the movie doesn't open until December. It, it really is something that you have to, like, yeah, take a minute to reflect on. But also, is it just so obviously the thing that it is, and doing what it's doing, that it doesn't leave much room for conversation about it? Give the nutshell description of what... Uh, of what Zone of Interest is for our listeners, in case they don't know. So, Zone of Interest is the latest movie by... Jonathan Glazer. We've previously talked about his movie 
his masterpiece <laughs> birth on this podcast. He's also done Sexy Beast and Under the Skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, movies that could not be any more different. And what this movie is gives you kind of a bird's eye view of Rudolf Haas and his family. He was the real-life longest-serving commandant at Auschwitz, and it is set in the family home literally over the fence from Auschwitz. Auschwitz's next-door neighbors. Yes, and uh, Sandra Huller plays his wife. It's constant, basically, domesticity of this family living next door to atrocity. and You're never inside Auschwitz in the movie. You are always at their home or in the na- in the village around it and yet you can hear gunfire in Always. the background you Constant. can you can see uh smoke in the background uh of things uh happening at Auschwitz so it's like it's constantly om- omnipresent yeah but you just their never in lives continuing um glazer is making a real uh statement about our not just ability to just overlook atrocity, but also be more involved in our own self-interest as horrible things are happening in the world. Mm-hmm. I think there's a certain element of the movie where he's inviting you to consider the way your own self-interest, 100%. not that he's calling you know, the audience Nazis, but the way that your own self-interest allows you to overlook things happening in the world that are... Maybe our own self-interest is actively allowing those things to happen. And to allow that self-interest to become the conversation, rather than, like, to allow your to allow us to turn um to to turn the conversation away from the flat atrocity into ancillary issues that concern our own self-interest. You know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. uh it's 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 really clever in that way. And I And it's it's a constantly appalling and nauseating movie. I mean like when you hear people say the banality of evil about mm-hmm. it, I think that's the most basic thing you can say about this movie. Um there's a lot more layered to it, but uh, as the plot kind of develops, and there is plot to this movie. I think when people describe it, it just sounds more like vignettes and right. such. But he gets a reassignment, and his wife is very opposed to it because yeah. she wants to cling on to this house that they have and the life that they've built for their children. And she's she says something to the effect of, I would rather die than leave this place. And it's so I think the reason though... that she is talking about Auschwitz. Like... I think the reason that people sort of talk about it in a way that sounds like it doesn't have a plot is because of the conceit of the movie. The plot is so absurdly uh, ridiculous. The the fact of the plot is so self-evidently unimportant to what is going on that it almost feels like it doesn't exist. You know what I mean? It almost feels like it's so insubstantial that, that for it to not exist. Um, I mean, I think, I think, you know, there's obviously a lot of time this movie debuted at Cannes and it got the Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel like we'll talk about anatomy of a fall. Um, well, anatomy of a fall was the palm winner. One um, of the things though, I wanted to mention just sort of structurally about TIFF, but also, uh, which has to, pertains to zone of interest so the thing with tiff is on the very first day they'll essentially 
maybe you know it it's it'll bleed over into that second day but um they they try to screen everything on the first day that previously screened at Cannes and Sundance and to just sort of like get all of that stuff out of the way so that the rest of the festival becomes things that are not if not necessarily tiff premieres but things that are that are that feel newer. You know what I mean? They want to emphasize their world premieres. Certainly. But even stuff that like may have like quietly premiered at Telluride, but like, you know, are, mm-hmm. are you know, that, that stuff happens later in the festival. But anyway, it turns that first day of TIFF. If you have not been to Cannes, which neither one of For us press, have, we should say. Well, the press, but also like a lot of those public premieres also, you know what I mean? Like a lot of those public premieres get taken care of in that first day. But anyway, yeah, certainly for press. Um, you have to watch all of your canned movies essentially the first day. So that first day becomes, and of course, when you think of like canned movies, they're all incredibly challenging and incredibly like dense and good. I had my first ever five movie day and four of them were canned movies. Lunatic. So even I, who did Anatomy of a Fall, Zone of Interest, and then Alice Rorocker's La Chimera, back to back to back. Roroache. Okay. I have heard enough people who worked, who have worked with her, pronounce it as Roar Walker that like, oh my god, okay. You haven't seen the movie, you'll get the joke when you watch it. I will, okay. Anyway though, but so, even just those three movies back to back to back, I was dragon ass by the end of the third one. It's just a lot of emotional and mental commitment. And I think it doesn't always, uh, it's not always conducive to appreciating those movies. When they screen at Cannes, they screen one at a time. Like, at most, it's two in a day, right? Of these, like, in-competition movies. And so you get more time, the people who watch them that way, to sit with them, to process them, to write about them, to whatever. And so when they're at TIFF all in one day... And it's back to back to back, where you even don't even really always have time to talk about them with your friends before as you've, you know, in between seeing them. It's it it can feel like a disservice to those movies. And of course, that is, you know, that's more of a my problem than an anybody else problem. But just in terms of the fact that, like, this is why I maybe need a little bit of more time to figure out where I'm at Us having to haul ass from Anatomy of a Fall, which is two and a half hours, to get immediately into Zone of Interest, sit down, and then the movie starts, it's, you know, it's not... I will say, I really did, on first blush, though, really vibed with Anatomy of a Fall. Um, I understand, I get why it won the Palme d'Or. It is a movie about a couple different things. It's a movie about a marriage that is toxic to itself, but it is also a movie about uh, a a legal case going through the French court system that I found. Let's talk about the French court system. If that's what it's really like, shit is wild over there. I almost don't want to know if all the time. If this isn't if this isn't what French court is really like, please don't ever tell me. Because watching this movie, <laughs> I'm like, this is the way it should be done. There are narratives. There is back and forth. There are people. Two people testifying at the same time. There are people just outright talking to children in the gallery. There's bitchy prosecutors who are in BPM who are like wearing a wig and doing it right. Um, it's so, 
It's so wild, but like that was. If they my had come forward and been like half of this, if they had done the blue is the warmest color thing and been like, well, half of this palm belongs to Sandra Huller, I would maybe get it a little bit. She's you are unreal. You are very movie. much the I loved, uh, I loved the Sandra Huller movie that I saw, and I am very much the I loved Anatomy of a Fall. So I think that's the difference between yeah, us. Yeah, I think it's a better movie about a marriage than yes. it is about the court proceedings. I'm I, the other way. The yes. movie, the th- I I think one of the reasons, and maybe why it won the Palm, is like the movie probably invites more interesting conversation than the movie is interesting to me because the way that it presents this character's potential guilt or innocence invites a lot of like personal bias or interpretation or uh you know how we process the details of her case of her marriage of her as a person that probably invites more interesting conversation than I felt. I don't really want to spoil anything about the movie for viewers because I think people will probably have a more interesting relationship with this movie than I had. I fell so adamantly on one side of her guilt or innocence throughout the movie and not and see, not because of my personal disposition, but the way that it was presented that like it is my feeling though that 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 it is my feeling that that's not a detriment and that the movie is not necessarily about you finding out whether she's guilty or innocent but i do think it is about ruminating over the potential for either case to have happened i mean i do think that like maybe the idea that the movie is after is not answer but debate and i didn't feel sure. much room for yeah. debate do we feel Personally. like that's going to be france's uh submission for international feature the announcement will happen for france sometime this week where the the week that this is dropping uh, there should be a lot of news the thing about this being france's potential submission is there is a lot of english in this movie Very much. not so much that it is it's a plot eligible. point in the movie like there is a plot point in the movie of how much yeah, yeah, english that's... is used versus how much french is used because she does play a german woman who, who does not like living in France <laughs> <laughs> and didn't like living in Germany, yeah. but she speaks English better than French. So she prefers to speak in English, especially when giving her deposition, because yeah. she can, as she says, be more honest and clear about what she's saying. Yeah. But of course, it's, you know, the question comes up of whether or not she's trying to be evasive by not speaking in French. Which, to me, I'm like, well, then make her speak German. <laughs> like, you know, get a German interpreter. Um, uh, yeah, so, like, that's <laughs> that's a plot of the movie. Do I think that that's going to necessarily prevent it from being France's submission? No, but I do think it it's a more risky choice because of that, even though it has the palm door, because I do wonder how much of a question this is going to maybe expose me as not knowing something i should already know are there institutional strictures within the oscars for how much english is allowed in an international feature because there have been movies that were deemed ineligible because there was too much at what phase would that eligibility be adjudicated 
I think it's before. I think it's post submission. Yeah, but before short. So list. you're really kind of taking a choice, uh, t- taking a chance if you submit this, and you're hoping that the Oscars will let it slide through. But apparently, Anatomy of a Fall has enough English. It, okay. but like I think it's it's somewhere in the fifty. Yeah range of something Off but the top like, of your- and this also brings to question like how necessary do we actually need these arbitrary rules yeah. especially for like country it's international feature now like so some of these countries like that have submitted and had things you know deemed ineligible yeah like english is the primary language in some of these countries that sure. have been ruled ineligible for primarily english language features so yeah. it's like what are we even doing here off the top of your head um, do you know any french movies that might challenge it for the submission the French shortlist, it's five films. The more active challenger against Anatomy of a Fall is whatever they're calling Potafu now. The Taste uh, of Things. The Vague of Vague. The Vague of Vague. <laughs> um, that's the title of that movie. Um, so we'll see. All right. Which I haven't seen, but which is playing at New York Film Festival, one of the many movies that will be taunting me from the New York Film Festival. Um, and IFC is apparently releasing it at some point. The two um, other international feature contenders that I saw at TIFF both of which I very much loved. Uh, we'll start with... Your favorite movie of the festival. My favorite movie of the festival, which was Perfect Days, the new film from Vim Vendors, starring Koji Yakusho as this uh, older gentleman who works as a cleaner uh, for the Tokyo Toilet Project, which is not a thing that I knew about, but when the uh, screenwriter for the film uh, introduced the film before our screening, essentially was like, I wanted to make a movie that really featured the beautiful Tokyo Toilet Project. And you're like, interesting. And then you watch the movie and you're like, oh, absolutely. Yes, there are these um, wonderful sort of public toilets in the city of Tokyo that are kind of an art installation (laughs) unto themselves. But they are also just sort of this like triumph of public works where they're, and part of the reason why they are such is because they are like immaculately maintained. And, uh, and, um, Koji Yakusho plays one of the people who maintains them. But there are these, you know, seemingly no two of them are the same. The, the, you know, sort of wonderful, um, uh, public toilets and some of them are more sort of you know seem more sort of artistically designed some of them have this kind of like space age glass where you push a button and the glass goes frosted and it's opaque and so you go inside this glass cube and you push a button and then all of a sudden you are obscured from you literally like the street <laughs> and then um and then you push a button again and and it's so there's that, there's the interest of that, but there's also, it's just this, like, character study of this man who, like, gets up every day and goes to, like, clean the toilets in in Tokyo, and it's his routine, and is he, you know, he seems content, but it's also, the movie is, is you know, showing this repetition, and it is very much the sort of the same, the same day. He listens to his cassettes, he trims his mustache, he goes to the baths, he drives the same stretch of highway, he sees the same sort of buildings in Tokyo, and then as the movie goes along, you get a little bit more about him and about his life we meet his niece we meet his sister and it to me 
I think Vendors does such a great job with that repetition, with this sort of, you know, simple decency of this man without, as I've seen in some criticisms, sort of like painting him as this kind of like saint of the underclass or anything like that. Like, I do not think that that's what this movie is doing. Um, Without getting into spoilers for the movie, it's text that it's not that. (laughs) Right. And, and, and... So anybody saying that, I'm like, did you did you watch the? But movie? there's, but you also don't have to be of the opinion that this that this man is like secretly tormented or whatever. Like he is, there's a complicated relationship that this man has to his routine, to his job, to the to what his life, the spot that his life has arrived at, and I think it's it's an incredibly it's a movie that invites active watching even though it is not a movie that is very active you know what i mean like it's a mm-hmm. it's almost like it's a passive movie that invites a lot of active watching which is one of my favorite types of movies um and the music is really wonderful he's really into listening to like american classic rock there's a lot of lou reed and velvet underground and patty smith and uh, mm-hmm. uh van morrison and, and nina simone and the music choices are all really cassette fantastic culture. cassette culture will love this that's movie. the thing and they're all in these you know cassettes that he plays he has a co-worker at the toilets who is this sort of like young guy who doesn't really want this job and he's you know a really interesting contrast to to this main character and he won the Best Actor Prize at Cannes, uh, Yakusha. Mm-hmm. Um, justifiably. Justifiably so. He's really wonderful. I don't think there's a chance that he's um, going to uh, get an acting nomination. But this is. I really wish that Neon would make a play for it, though, because I think it's he's such a likable movie. He's so good. For in me, it. the best thing about the movie. Yes. A movie that's. A- clearly playing well i think it's going to be a front runner for international feature i hope so it's so a lot of people are really responding to this movie but i really wish that there was that they can build some conversation around his performance Mm -hmm. because a best actor is boring as hell Mm -hmm. already and koji yukusha is a legend uh i yeah one of my favorite horror films is Cure. He's tremendous in that movie. Mm-hmm. He's worked with like global filmmakers in his yeah. long career. Yeah, you know, I don't think that it's that far outside of reason that they couldn't make a case to get him Oscar nominated. I will be loudly supporting this movie throughout uh, Oscar season, especially if it gets an international feature nomination. The other movie I really loved is Germany's submission, which is called The Teacher's Lounge, which in a nutshell is about this school in Germany where there are thefts happening. And the teachers and the administration are kind of wrestling with how draconian they want to be about sort of ferreting out how fascist they want to be about ferreting out these thefts. And then one of the teachers, our protagonist gets something stolen from her and suspicion for that falls upon one of essentially like the school secretary and who has a son who is in the school. And it becomes this like very thorny, very kind of like, very European, very German, actually, this sort of thorny uh, morality play about who is at fault and what these sort of sins of suspicion will now, you know, the seeds of this suspicion now bear fruit in these, like, really 
difficult ways and you almost suspect it to go like really, really dark and it doesn't, it pulls back from actual textual darkness, but like that spiritual darkness sort of like feels like it's still within you. I can say without spoiling it, it also has some fantastic moments of levity, uh, most primarily, which involve a student newspaper at this high school that is... <coughs> tremendous like genuinely um uh one of my favorite uh child uh, uh, child uh perform like set of child performances that i'm going to see this year is everybody who worked at the student uh, newspaper um i'm not sure if this is going to be a major contender but i would love it if it was because i think it will be i think everybody i've talked to who has seen it has really liked it I liked both of these movies a good deal less than you did. Yeah. For Perfect Days, like, I don't think it fully dives into the, like, cutesiness of it, but it's, like, constantly tottering on the edge of it for me. That, like, I just didn't love living in that tension of this could become cutesy and annoying at any given oh, moment. Oh, I did not feel any of that um, tension. I, I love it say. as, like, a movie that's about, uh, you know, even if you... It's not just regret, but like living the life you want to live, there will constantly be tension and a pull for a different kind of life. Um, I think Perfect Days articulates that beautifully. The Teacher's Lounge, I think, is good. I think people are going to respond to it, and I think it'll be a contender, at least for a nomination. I had a lot of snags with it as like being representative or allegorical to how democracy works or social structures work it's a bit too cynical for me because there's a degree to which the movie i think everybody behaves a little too ridiculously sure i think if this while i loved all of those kids uh i think this like student paper if it's supposed to be representative of the press i don't think it ultimately has a good point of view on the effectiveness of the press or the motivation of the press i thought that was intentionally Um, comedic though in a way that really worked for me oh see i i kind of felt like you know if they if they represent the press this movie thinks that the press is stupid and bad um i don't know if i think it's that straightforward but anyway continue um so yeah i i had some reservations about both of those movies but like i absolutely see why people love it you weren't just the one of the people that thought that was your favorite of the festival for perfect days no katie from like three or four people yeah katie uh also uh i think had it as her favorite of the festival talking to her um yeah I, I I was very it was one of those movies that it ended and I like have this like biggest smile plastered on my face. And it was also that was a late night, late Friday night movie. I had that was the movie where I'm walking up to the theater and I'm like, I cannot fall asleep. This was so my my radical honesty time. My very first day, by the time I got to La Chimera, my third of three movies, I was I, I was nodding off a little bit. Nothing against La Chimera, which we'll talk about in a second because I know how much you loved it. I, it is of no fault to La Chimera that I was nodding off. I was just constitutionally incapable of hanging at that moment. And I was deathly afraid that the same was going to happen at Perfect Days. And so I'm like, it's like nine o'clock at night. And I'm like, do I get a cold brew and risk (laughs) like this thing blazing a path through my intestines, you know what I mean? And like putting me in some sort of like 
late night distress in the middle of this movie, or do I risk nodding off? And I got the cold brew, and the cold brew settled quite nicely, and I was like, had no problems. And weirdly enough, like the Tim Hortons cold brew kind of saved me throughout that festival. I was, uh, I was uh, alert and awake throughout all of my rest of my movies. So uh, apologies to Alice Rohrwacher for uh, nodding off to La Chimera. I will see it again because, Chris, you fucking love that movie. I do fucking love that movie. Um, Tell us about it. What's it about? Okay, so uh, in the grand sense, it is about uh, Italian grave robbers who... Uh, throughout the landscape, there are these hidden tombs that they dig up and find these artifacts so that they can sell them mm-hmm. for, you know, profit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> this isn't national treasure. This is also, uh, you know, a class satire. These are people not of means who that this is what they have to do in order to be able to, like, provide for themselves and their family. Mm-hmm. And it's led by Josh O'Connor as, you know, a vagabond who's, you know, not from that culture, but uh, he's our protagonist who we follow. And there's something about the way that Alice creates magical realism in her movies that I really very much vibe with, but I also, for when she does certain type of social commentaries, I understand some people think Happy as Lazaro is ultimately a little heavy-handed. This I do not think is. Um, I think there's a lot of subtlety in what she's doing. I think... For movies that want to have, like, social conversations and, uh, you know, have an ultimate, like, theme and comment on our society, even a lot of movies that I like can be very didactic, some of which we've already talked about on this very episode. And she dodges that at every point for me in a way that just also she's presenting this very magical movie that I get very keyed into and I don't know I felt transported by this movie that was my favorite of the festival for most of the festival up until your very last day until up until my last day um and I felt like I got a transportive experience much like I do any time that she makes something in a way that I didn't really get much of in this festival. Two things you didn't mention that I loved about La Chimera, one of which was I love how much it references the Etruscans and how they are sort of raiding the tombs of the Etruscan people and how the Etruscans were this much more gentle society as contrasted Mm -hmm. with the more sort of macho temperament of uh, what what Italian society became. Um, I thought that was very interesting. You also failed to mention um, my favorite character from the movie, which was Josh O'Connor's linen suit. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, which is as much of a character as anything in that yeah. film. As it gets, there's also Isabella Rossellini as the grandmother oh. or the matriarch of about like fourteen and a half sisters, which is a very who all uh, seem to hate her, like who like device. none of them Tremendous. like her, and they all resent how fond she is of Josh O'Connor. And she's so ugh, she's a she's a she's a gem in this movie. Um, what do you think this movie's chances are of getting uh, the Italian slot 
It's on their short list. Hold on, let me pull up what the rest of their submissions are. Um, Neon has it, so, like, Neon is capable of pushing this movie before, or, of, uh, you know, they've shown that they can Mm -hmm. do well by a movie. The Italian short list is a bunch of different movies. This is, I think, at least the one that I've seen well-received. There's also Matteo Garone's Io Capitano that just did well at Venice, which I think is probably the biggest threat to being the submission. They do tend to like Matteo Garone in in Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Any other international feature contenders you want to mention? I saw a bunch of them. Yes. Uh, Previously, I'd seen Shada, which is the Australian submission. Mm -hmm. And that was the one that I'm like, Sony Classics has it, and they're pushing really hard on Teacher's Lounge, and I think they should be pushing hard on Shada, because it has a tre- another tremendous Zara Mir Ebrahimi performance. Um, Shada is how the characters in La Chimera uh, watch RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> and they say, Shada, Shada. Shada! Um, I also saw the uh, South Korean submission, Concrete Utopia. I think it's... It's the type of disaster movie that we've seen before. I don't know if it's going to be a threat to be nominated. Okay. Also saw the Chilean film The Settlers, which also has a lot of English um, in it. That was a can in certain regard movie that did well, and movie has it. Um, it's pretty violent, but I thought it was you know pretty good. I liked it better than say The Teacher's Lounge. Um, and then I saw the Romanian submission that will 100% not be nominated. <laughs> uh, Radu Jude's Do Not Expect Too Much from the End of the World. Uh, listeners might uh, remember Radu Jude from uh, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn uh, during the pandemic as a submission, which of course also didn't uh, get nominated because his movies are... Yeah. Wild. Long. This movie is almost it's all it's an almost three hour long comedy that has all of these different diversions. It mostly follows this character who uh is basically a gig employee. She does like Uber driving, she works for this production company going around getting these interviews for a work safety video that really as the movie goes on we learn that it's more about this corporation resol- absolving themselves of responsibility f- for uh, the Romanian workers who have been injured, basically. Yeah. And then it ends with these super long takes of them filming this uh, video mm-hmm. that it's constant. There's cringe humor, but then there's also like traditional setup punchline jokes throughout the movie. I thought it was one of the funnier movies I've seen in a while while also being absolutely not something the Academy is going to go for. Nina Haas plays, like, the head of this corporation, and her first scene is entirely through Zoom, and it was maybe the single funniest scene I have seen in a long time. There's an Uva Boll cameo. why not? This movie's nuts. Um, But also, like, really great. Pretty didactic in terms of, you know, the social commentary that it's doing. But didactic in a very funny way. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. All right. We want to talk about our top five films. I'll go first since I have one that we... the I only have one on mine that we haven't talked about. And you have two. Here's what I'm going to do. Initially, I was going to include both Anatomy of a Fall and Zone of Interest in mind because I think in terms of, like, the best movies that I saw, those deserve spot on my top five. But in terms of, like, 
the movies that I was most enthusiastic about at TIFF, it seems dishonest for me to not go that way. So just know that, like, sure, I think sure, Anatomy sure. of a Fall and Zone of Interest are masterpieces, and I will be happy to talk about them throughout award season. But my top five go as follows. Number five is Anna Kendrick's Woman of the Hour. Number four is Richard Linkletter's Hitman. Number three is Alexander Payne's The Holdovers. Number two, well, I'll say number one is Vim Vendors' Perfect Days. And then number two is the only yeah, one sorry we... sorry for spoiling that. <laughs> uh, no, that's fine. And then my number my number two is the only one we haven't talked about yet, which is Zazel Jacobs' His Three Daughters, starring Carrie Coon, Boy. Natasha Leone, and Elizabeth Olsen as the titular Three Daughters. Chris, this movie hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, I was there right next to you. I think you can attest that it did the You were a puddle me. of tears, Chris, in this movie, and I love it. Listeners, Joe was patting my leg. I was crying. I so really hard. was. He needed comforting. And then, okay, but I also did the thing where I leaned over and I said, I have tissues if you want it. And then Chris's response to me was. And I said, yes, I would love a tissue. But, and listeners, what does he do? Doesn't Okay, give those Chris's tissues, response like, to me was. <laughs> So I heard, I did not make it out. And I did that dumb thing where I'm like, okay, because I genuinely thought he was saying, I'm good. <laughs> and so he was not good. I should have just handed him tissues. L- listeners, let this be a lesson to you. If you think somebody needs tissues, just hand him the tissues. Don't ask. Um, uh, luckily, there was only like five minutes left in the movie. And then at the end, you're like, I'll take those tissues now. <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> uh his three daughters, though. Okay, so in a nutshell, three sisters, their father is dying. They are in his uh, New York City rent-controlled, Richard Lawson sort of surmised that it was uh, around the sort of Stytown area, which makes sense, um, rent-controlled apartment that he shares with the one daughter, played by Natasha Leone, who's kind of the um, least... Uh, f- financially, socially, professionally stable of the three. The one who's sort of, like, her life isn't quite together yet. Um, She lives there. Carrie Coon is the oldest and the meanest. Elizabeth Olsen is the youngest and a new mother of a baby girl and the sort of, you think, the flightiest? former deadhead. Former deadhead. But, like, an atypical former deadhead. Although she's, like... You're not. You're never quite sure how flighty she is versus just sort of like is she? Does she just have new mom brain? Not to like insult new moms out there. But the like, movie opens and it feels like these characters are, are aliens because it's so heightened and like that's that's one of the things about Azazel Jacobs is like there is a heightenedness to his movies and I feel like it starts that way as like this jarring effect to you know really sink us into the tension between these sisters that like Carrie Coon is so like battering Ram like angry. She's so angry. uh, Elizabeth Olsen is like this wisp of a thing. That's just like, you know, a high pitched voice and like, like she's almost like a forest sprite of some time. The thing about Carrie Coon being the angriest though, is she's so angry and yet she's determined to justify every angry impulse as having like a rational basis to it. So she's always, she's just like, I'm not mad. I'm just saying, I'm not mad. We just talked about this. I'm not mad, but it would be nice if you could. And it's just like, it's all of that stuff. And it's so 
it's recognizable. All of this, these relationships, yeah. you, you said they start off like aliens, but it becomes so recognizable. Every new thing you learn about their dynamic makes so much sense. It's such a well-built movie. It's such a well-acted movie. I'm not going to say a thing about what happens in the last half hour of this movie, except to say no. that it is a fucking wallop. And it is, yeah. it really hits you. It's uh, for any listeners who maybe have guard up around this movie. I think it's the most straightforward thing Azazel Jacobs has ever yeah, done. Yeah, if you saw French Exit and you're like, ah, that was a miserable experience I'm watching out on a that movie. Guy. It, it it's feels nothing almost like French like Exit. A reaction to him making something that was so heightened. Which, like, I'm someone who came out positive on French Exit. I understand why a lot of people hate that movie. But do not um, allow your feelings on that movie to influence you watching his three daughters because they are just it's night and day in terms of vibe yeah 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 um it was my i it go ahead i was just gonna say it's it's cheap to say that it's maybe you know the type of movie that doesn't get made anymore because it's a lot of just conversations in one space and i hope that that doesn't prevent it getting the type of distribution that it really deserves but this is also the movie that when you were talking to people what they saw and loved in this festival, yes. this is the movie I kept hearing yes. from everyone. Yes. And I think it's partly because it does have that element of surprise in what it's doing yeah. and how real and rich these characters feel yeah. and how earned the emotion in this movie is mm-hmm. and just how relatable I think a lot of this movie will be for a lot of different people. Yes. All right, Chris, um, what is your top five? Natasha Leone, oh, who we didn't mention, is also all three actresses are tremendous. I think Natasha is yeah. probably my my best among equals for me. I think she's so phenomenally good. I think like, yeah. but um, it's going to be one of those movies where maybe everybody has a different favorite performance in it, which is I love those movies. Um, mm-hmm. As I mentioned on Letterboxd. Uh, Carrie Coon is the Clarissa Vaughn because she's uh, <laughs> she's always she's making dinner and nobody appreciates it, and she's also the most uptight. Uh, Elizabeth Olsen is the Laura Brown because she's the one who is most defined by her motherhood, even though you start to wonder. And Natasha Leone is the Virginia Woolf because she smokes all the time. So <laughs> there we have it. Um, all right, Chris. Give- Elizabeth Olsen's monologue about the Deadhead community. If I just, like, described it to you, you would be like, that sounds awful and annoying, but I thought it was one of the most beautiful moments I've seen in a movie. It's so wonderful. All right, give me me your top five, and then we gotta uh, get a move on. All right, my number five was Radu Jude's Do Not Expect Too Much from the End of the World. My number four, Azazel Jacobs, His Three Daughters. Number three, The Zone of Interest by Jonathan Glazer. Number two, Alicia Ravache's La Chimera. My number one saw on my last day on the ground, Bertrand Bonello's The Beast. Tell me about it. Holy shit. What has Bertrand Bonello done previous to this? Bertrand Bonello, um, I think listeners would probably be more familiar with his uh, film Nocturama, which was um, at Cannes and TIFF maybe a decade ago. It's... Um, somewhat controversial. It's about the teens who bomb uh, Paris, I believe. He's done a lot of other French movies, many of which I have not seen, but now mm-hmm. desperately want to catch up to. 
Um, the Beast is a science fiction pseudo romance based off of a Henry James novella. It is a lot going on. It is the movie that made my brain explode from this whole festival. Uh, it stars Lea Seydoux and Shocker George McKay, who oh, who I Chris loved his performance in this movie. He's never been better cast. Uh, it's. A time-hopping science fiction movie where future Leia Sadu, in order to be a more efficient, happier, uh, slash despondent uh, human in the world, uh, decides to have her DNA memories erased. Mm -hmm. And it sends us back to three that timeline. There's also a timeline in the early 1900s. and a timeline in the roughly early 2000s. I think it's like 2012 or something. Mm-hmm. Where uh, it's all kind of centered on these past lives, past experiences, where she's ridden with this anxiety that something horrible is going to happen. And in some of these timelines, the horrible thing does happen or already has happened or Mm -hmm. is in the process of happening and this kind of anxiety that the the suggestion is this anxiety that we have as a society or will have as a society uh has been part of our you know human existence through all of this or through all different types of experiences and different types of uh modern culture Mm -hmm. uh and yet it is also a love story. And in the middle love story, the love has curdled. And George McKay is playing a based-on-life-I-forget-the-guy who was posting these vlogs and then went and killed these women. He's basically playing an incel who is stalking Leia Sadu in that um, story. And it's, you know... He is the actual calamity that is that she is terrified of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mo- it doesn't have distribution. It was the most thrilling viewing experience I had in that I could not predict what was going to happen next, and the way that it ties its very wide-reaching themes together, I thought was uh, tremendously thrilling. That's. This type of uh, experience is why I kind of come to the festival Mm. to see this, you know, really uncompromising vision um, that I know this movie is not going to be for everyone. And it takes some wild leaps, but... Do you think I will like it? I think possibly. Okay. I think it's, it's it's, it's a rigorous type of audience sometimes distancing thing, but if you can get on its wavelength, sure. it's it's a ride. Um, and all of the things that I saw it compared to, I was like, yes, but not really. Like, I've seen people uh. say Holy Motors, I've seen people say David Lynch, and that I just think they're saying that because there's a Roy Orbison song in it. But like those comparisons make sense because there's no immediate thing I can draw a comparison to with this movie. And that in it of itself was thrilling in, in future Leia Sidhu goes to a club that every night is like based off of a different year. So of course I was thinking club 96 the whole time. (laughs) Um, so in that 
regard, it's a really interesting reflection on time sure. and the things that change or stay the same. Um, our fetishization of past, you know, culture. Sure. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible movie. Nice. I almost did the Festival Five Star Slam on it, but, you know. Wow. When you see so many things next to each other, you yeah. do want to stew on movies a little more. All right, Chris. I think I have exhausted my TIFF notebook for another year. What about you? Let me pull up my letterbox list and see if I have anything else I want to comment on. I saw Ryosuke Hamaguchi's new movie, Evil Does Not Exist. Right. Um, I really liked this movie. I was high off of the beast immediately after seeing it, so I'm eager to see it again. Um, it was very... I don't want to spoil it, but not the type of experience Drive My Car gives in terms of, like, I think this is a bleaker movie, Mm -hmm. almost a Wiseman-esque centerpiece about process and, you know, community process, that that was the peak of the movie to me. Yeah. Um, I really liked Raul Peck's Silver Dollar Road. I know a lot of people didn't respond to it, I think partly because... He's another process filmmaker, whereas Mm -hmm. this movie, I think he's making... He's less interested in process, because the legal struggle of this family, who they bought 60 acres of land the year after slavery ended and passed it down through generations, and now uh, they are part of Mm -hmm. a lot of people in this country who... uh, Black families are losing their land because of the legal tangle that they get enroped in because there's all these encroaching corporations and companies trying to, you know, get this land that is rightfully theirs. Mm-hmm. And you you hear that and you uh, imagine the Raoul Peck version of that, but really what he's made is something completely different from the rest of his filmography, I think, in that mm-hmm. he's made a family saga that's really as in-depth as he normally gets with process. He is about these people and yeah. learning their family history and their current struggle in a way that I found really moving. Uh, anything else I want to talk about? Yeah, I saw a lot of bad movies, (laughs) but I do think my battering average was generally high. Go a lot of things that I could quibble with. Yeah, go seek out Chris's piece from the Daily Beast talking about the writer or the uh, actor directors of 2023. Uh, Make make his sacrifice worth it. All right, Chris. I saw Gonzo Girl, so you don't have to. Another hell of a summer, so you don't have to. Another uh, another successful tiff. Uh, looking forward to the next one already. Uh, Cameron Bailey has already uh, announced the uh, the dates <laughs> for the new one, fifth to the fifteenth next year. I'll be there. I hope you're there. Um, yeah, that's it. That's it. We did it. We did it. We did it. Team. Coming in under two hours. Just. Alrighty. Do we? Uh, we don't typically do the IMDb game for this, and I think we can rest our brains a little bit post-festival. We'll recharge for next week. Uh, subscribe to the Patreon. Don't forget to join the Vulture uh, Movie Fantasy League. All of the stuff. But for now, that's our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Also on Instagram at thishadoscarbuzz. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash thishadoscarbuzz. 
Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Taylor Cole for our theme music, Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Bevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So uh, I wasn't prepared for a joke, but go and give us a review. I think we're closing in on a thousand reviews. Oh, that's nice. Uh, I will confirm. But hey, if you haven't left us that five star yet, give us that five star. Do it. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Okay. This is Canadian content, and it's time we take credit for it. Starting now. Oh, oh.